How does the brain, brooding in its isolated bony chambers, perceive the world? Consider this example. It is Friday night at a New York club. The dance beat dominates, both annoying and hypnotic, felt more than heard. Laser lights shoot across the room. Bodies move. The smells of alcohol, fried food, and illegal smoking mix in the atmosphere like a second soundtrack. In the corner, a jilted lover is crying. There is so much information in the room, you are beginning to get a headache, so you step out for a breath of fresh air. The jilted lover follows you. Snapshots like these illustrate the incredible amount of sensory information your brain must process simultaneously. External physical inputs and internal emotional inputs all are presented to your brain in a never-ending fire hose of sensations. Dance clubs may seem the extreme, yet there may be no more information there than what you'd normally experience the next morning on the streets of Manhattan. Faithfully, your brain perceives the screech of the taxis, the pretzels for sale, the crosswalk signal, and the people brushing past, just as it could hear the pounding beat and the smell of cigarettes last night. You are a wonder, and we in brain science land are only beginning to figure out how you do it. Scientists often point to an experience called the McGurk effect to illustrate sensory integration. Suppose researchers showed you a video of a person saying the surprisingly ugly syllable, gah. Unbeknownst to you, the scientists had turned off the sound of the original video and had dubbed the sound ba onto it. When the scientist asks you to listen to the video with your eyes closed, you hear ba just fine. But if you open your eyes, your brain suddenly encounters the shape of the lip saying ga while your ears are still hearing ba. The brain has no idea what to do with this contradiction, so it makes something up. If you are like most people, what you actually will hear when your eyes open is the syllable da. This is the brain's compromise between what you hear and what you see, its need to attempt integration. But you don't have to be in a laboratory to show this. You can just go to a movie. The actors you see speaking to each other on screen are not really speaking to each other at all. Their voices emanate from speakers cleverly placed around the room, some behind you, some beside you, none centered on the actors' mouths. Even so, you believe the voices are coming from those mouths. Your eye observes lips moving in tandem with the words your ears are hearing, and the brain combines the experience to trick you into believing the dialogue comes from the screen. Together, these senses create the perception of someone speaking in front of you, when actually nobody is speaking in front of you. How the senses integrate. Analyses like these have led scientists to propose a continua of theories about how the senses integrate. On one end of this large continuum are ideas that remind me of the British armies during the Revolutionary War. On the other end are ideas that remind me of how the Americans fought them. The British, steeped in the traditions of large European land wars, had lots of central planning. The field office gathered information from leaders on the battleground and then issued its commands. The Americans, steeped in the traditions of nothing, used guerrilla tactics, on-the-ground analysis, and decision-making prior to consultation with a central command. Take the sound of a single gunshot over a green field during that war. In the British model of this experience, our senses function separately, sending their information into the brain's central command, its sophisticated perception centers. Only in these centers does the brain combine the sensory inputs into a cohesive perception of the environment. The ears hear the rifle and generate a complete auditory report of what just occurred. The eyes see the smoke from the gun arising from the turf and process the information separately, generating a visual report of the event. The nose, smelling gunpowder, does the same thing. 
They each send their data to central command. There, the inputs are bound together, a cohesive perception is created, and the brain lets the soldier in on what he just experienced. The process can be divided into three steps. Step number one, sensation. This is where we capture the energies from our environment, pushing themselves into our orifices and rubbing against our skin. The effort involves converting this external information into a brain-friendly electrical language. Step number two, routing. Once the information is successfully translated into head-speak, it is sent off to appropriate regions of the brain for further processing. The signals for vision, hearing, touch, taste, and smell all have separate specialized places where this processing occurs. A region called the thalamus, an egg-shaped structure in the middle of your second brain, helps supervise most of this shuttling. Step number three, perception. The various senses start merging their information. These integrated signals are sent to increasingly complex areas of the brain, actually called higher regions, and we begin to perceive what our senses have given us. As we shall see shortly, this final step has both bottom-up and top-down features. The American model puts things very differently. Here the senses work together from the very beginning, consulting and influencing one another quite early in the process. As the ear and eye simultaneously pick up gunshot and smoke, the two impressions immediately confer with each other. They perceive that the events are occurring in tandem without conferencing with any higher authority. The picture of a rifle firing over an open field emerges in the observer's brain. The steps are still sensation, routing, and perception, but at each step, add, the signals begin immediately communicating, influencing subsequent rounds of signal processing. The last stage, perception, is not where the integration begins. The last step is where the integration culminates. Which model is correct? The data are edging in the direction of the second model, but the truth is that nobody knows how it works. There are tantalizing suggestions that the senses actually help one another, and in a precisely coordinated fashion. This chapter is mostly interested in what happens after sensation and routing, how we achieve perception, has occurred. Bottoms up, tops down. We can see how important this last step is by looking at what happens when it breaks down. Oliver Sacks reports on a patient he calls Dr. Richard, who had lost various perceptual processing abilities. There wasn't anything wrong with Dr. Richard's vision. He just couldn't always make sense of what he saw. When a friend walked into a room and sat down on a chair, he did not always perceive the person's various body parts as belonging to the same body. Only when the person got up out of the chair would he suddenly recognize them as possessed by one person. If Dr. Richard looked at a photograph of people at a football stadium, he would often identify the same colors of different people's wardrobes as belonging together in some fashion. He could not see such commonalities as belonging to separate people. Most interesting, he could not always perceive multisensory stimuli as belonging to the same experience. This could be observed when Dr. Richard tried to watch someone speaking. He often could not make a connection between the motion of the speaker's lips and the speech. They were often out of sync. He sometimes reported the experience as if watching a badly dubbed foreign movie. Given the survival advantage to seeing the world as a whole, scientists have been deeply concerned with the binding problem, a notion we discussed in the attention chapter. They ask, once the thalamus has done its distribution duties, what happens next? The information, dissected into sensory-sized pieces and flung widely across the brain's landscape, needs to be reassembled, something Dr. Richard was not very good at. Where and how does information from different senses begin to merge in the brain? The where is easier than the how. We know that most of the sophisticated stuff occurs in regions known as association cortices. 
Association cortices are specialized areas that exist throughout the brain, including the parietal, temporal, and frontal lobes. They are not exactly sensory regions, and they are not exactly motor regions, but they are exactly bridges between them, hence the name association. Scientists think these regions use both bottom-up and top-down processes to achieve perception. As the sensory signals ascend through higher and higher orders of neural processing, these processes kick in. Here's an example. Author W. Somerset Maugham once said, There are only three rules for writing a novel. Unfortunately, nobody knows what they are. Suppose you just read that sentence in a book. After your eyes saw it, and the thalamus has spattered various aspects of the sentence all over the inside of your skull, bottom-up processors go to work. The visual system, which we will say more about in the vision chapter, is a classic bottom-up processor. What happens? Feature detectors, which work like auditors in an accounting firm, greet the sentence's visual stimuli. The auditors inspect every structural element in each letter of every word in Mom's quote. They write a report, a visual conception of letters and words. An upside-down arch becomes the letter U. Two straight lines at right angles become the letter T. Combinations of straight lines and curves become the word three. Written information has a lot of visual features in it, and this report takes a great deal of effort and time to organize. It is one of the reasons that reading is a relatively slow way to put information into the brain. Next comes top-down processing. This can be likened to a board of directors reading the auditor's report and then reacting to it. Many comments are made. Sections are analyzed in light of pre-existing knowledge. The board in your brain has heard of the word three before, for example, and it has been familiar with the concept of rules since you were familiar with anything. Some board members even have heard of W. Somerset Mom before, and they recall to your consciousness a movie called Of Human Bondage, which you saw in a film history course. Information is added to the data stream or subtracted from the data stream. The brain can even alter the data stream if it so chooses, and it so chooses a lot. Such interpretive activity is the domain of top-down processing. At this point, the brain generously lets you in on the fact that you are perceiving something. Given that people have unique previous experiences, they bring different interpretations to their top-down analyses. Thus, two people can see the same input and come away with vastly different perceptions. It is a sobering thought. There is no guarantee that your brain will perceive the world accurately, even if other parts of your body can. So, life is filled with the complex qualities of sound, visual images, shapes, textures, tastes, and odors, and the brain seeks to simplify this world by adding more confusion. This requires large groups of receptors, each one in charge of a particular sensory attribute, to act simultaneously. For us to savor the richness and diversity of perception, the central nervous system must integrate the activity of entire sensory populations. It does this by pushing electrical signals through an almost bewildering thicket of ever more complex, higher neural assemblies. Finally, you perceive something. Survival by teamwork. There are many types of synesthesia, more than 50, according to one paper. One of the strangest illustrates that even when the brain's wiring gets confused, the senses still work together. There are some people who see a word and immediately experience a taste on their tongue. This isn't the typical mouth-watering response, such as imagining the taste of a candy bar after hearing the word chocolate. This is like seeing the word sky in a novel and suddenly tasting a sour lemon in your mouth. A clever experiment showed that even when the synesthete, that's what they're called, could not recall the exact word, he or she could still get the taste as long as there was some generalized description of the missing word. 
Data like these illustrate that sensory processes are wired to work together, thus the heart of the brain rule, stimulate multiple senses simultaneously. The evolutionary rationale for this observation is simple. Our East African crib did not unveil its sensory information one sense at a time during our development. It did not possess only visual stimuli, like a silent movie, and then suddenly acquire an audio track a few million years later, and then, later, smells and odors and textures. By the time we came out of the trees, our ancestors were encountering a multisensory world, and we were already champions at experiencing it. Some interesting experiments support these ideas. Several years ago, scientists were able to peer in on the brain using functional MRI technology. They played a trick on their subjects. They showed a video of someone speaking, but completely turned off the sound. When the researchers examined what the brain was doing, they found that the area responsible for processing the sound the auditory cortex, was stimulated as if the person actually were hearing sound. If the person was presented with a person simply making faces, the auditory cortex was silent. It had to be a visual input related to sound. Clearly, visual inputs influence auditory inputs, even with the sound turned off. In another experiment at about the same time, researchers showed short flashes of light near the subject's hand, which were rigged with a tactile stimulator. Sometimes researchers would turn on the stimulator while the flash of light was occurring, sometimes not. No matter how many times they did this, the visual portion of the brain always lighted up the strongest when the tactile response was paired with it. They could literally get a boost in the visual system by introducing touch. This effect is called multimodal reinforcement. Multiple senses affect our ability to detect stimuli too. Most people, for example, have a very hard time seeing a flickering light if the intensity of the light is gradually decreased. Researchers decided to test that threshold by precisely coordinating a short burst of sound with the light flickering off. The presence of sound actually changed the threshold. The subjects found that they could see the light way beyond their normal threshold if sound was part of the experience. These data show off the brain's powerful integrative instincts. Knowing that the brain cut its developmental teeth in an overwhelmingly multisensory environment, you might hypothesize that its learning abilities are increasingly optimized the more multisensory the environment becomes. You might further hypothesize that the opposite is true. Learning is less effective in a unisensory environment. That is exactly what you find, and it leads to direct implications for education and for business. The Learning Link Cognitive psychologist Richard Meyer probably has done more than anybody else to explore the link between multimedia exposure and learning. He sports a 10-megawatt smile, and his head looks exactly like an egg, albeit a very clever egg. His experiments are just as smooth. Divide the room into three groups. One group gets information delivered via one sense, say hearing, another the same information from another sense, say sight, and the third group the same information delivered as a combination of the first two senses. The groups in the multisensory environments always do better than the groups in the unisensory environments. They have more accurate recall. Their recall has better resolution and lasts longer, evident even 20 years later. Problem solving improves. In one study, the group given multisensory presentations generated more than 50% more creative solutions on a problem-solving test than students who saw unisensory presentations. In another study, the improvement was more than 75%. The benefits of multisensory inputs are physical as well. Our muscles react more quickly. 
our threshold for detecting stimuli improves, and our eyes react to visual stimuli more quickly. It's not just combinations of sight and sound. When touch is combined with visual information, recognition learning leaps forward by almost 30% compared with touch alone. These improvements are greater than what you'd predict by simply adding up the unisensory data. This is sometimes called supra-additive integration. In other words, the positive contributions of multisensory presentations are greater than the sum of their parts. Simply put, multisensory presentations are the way to go. Many explanations have been put forth to explain these consistent findings, and most involve working memory. You might recall from Chapter 5 that working memory, formerly called short-term memory, is a complex workspace that allows the learner to hold information for a short period of time. You might also recall its importance to the classroom and to business. What goes on in the volatile world of working memory deeply affects whether something that is taught will also be learned. All explanations about multisensory learning also deal with a counterintuitive property lurking at its mechanistic core. Extra information given at the moment of learning makes learning better. It's like saying that if you carry two heavy backpacks on a hike instead of one, you will accomplish your journey more quickly. This is the elaborative processing that we saw in the chapter on short-term memory. Stated formally, it is the extra cognitive processing of information that helps the learner to integrate the new material with prior information. Multisensory experiences are, of course, more elaborate. Is that why they work? Richard Mayer thinks so, and so do other scientists, looking mostly at recognition and recall. One more example of synesthesia supports this. Remember Solomon Sharashevsky's amazing mental ability? He could hear a list of 70 words once, repeat the list back without error, forward or backward, and then reproduce the same list, again without error, 15 years later. Sharashevsky had multiple categories of disability. He felt that some colors were warm or cool, which is common, but he also thought that the number one was proud, a well-built man, and that the number six was a man with a swollen foot, which was not common. Some of his imaging was nearly hallucinatory. He related, One time I went to buy ice cream. I walked over to the vendor and asked her what kind of ice cream she had. Fruit ice cream, she said. But she answered in such a tone that a whole pile of coals, of black cylinders, came bursting out of her mouth, and I couldn't bring myself to buy any ice cream after she had answered that way. Sharashevsky is clearly in his own mental universe, but he illustrates a more general principle. Synesthetes almost universally respond to the question, what good does this extra information do with an immediate and hearty, it helps you remember. Given such unanimity, researchers have wondered for years if there is a relationship between synesthesia and advanced mental ability. There is. Synesthetes usually display unusually advanced memory ability, photographic memory in some cases. Most synesthetes report the odd experiences as highly pleasurable, which may, by virtue of dopamine, aid in their memory formations. Rules for the rest of us. Over the decades, Mayer has isolated a number of rules for multimedia presentations, linking what we know about working memory with his own empirical findings on how multimedia exposure affects human learning. Here are five of these linkages in summary form. Number one, multimedia principle. Students learn better from words and pictures than from words alone. Number two, temporal contiguity principle. Students learn better when corresponding words and pictures are presented simultaneously rather than successively. Number three, spatial contiguity principle. Students learn better when corresponding words and pictures are presented near to each other than far from each other on the page or screen. Number four, 
coherence principle, students learn better when extraneous material is excluded rather than included. Number five, modality principle. Students learn better from animation and narration than from animation and on-screen text. Though wonderfully empirical, these principles are relevant only to combinations of two senses, hearing and vision. We have three other senses also capable of contributing to the educational environment. Beginning with the story of a talented combat veteran, let's explore what happens if we just add one more, smell. Nosing it out. I once heard a story about a man who washed out of medical school because of his nose. To understand his story, you have to know something about the smell of surgery, and you have to have killed somebody. Surgery can sometimes be a smelly experience. When you cut somebody's body, you invariably cut their blood vessels. To keep the blood from interfering with the operation, surgeons use a cauterizing tool, hot as a soldering iron. It's applied directly to the wound, burning it shut, filling the room with the acrid smell of smoldering flesh. Combat can smell the same way, and the medical student in question was a Vietnam vet with heavy combat experience. He didn't seem to suffer any aversive effects when he came home. He had no post-traumatic stress disorder and he became a high-functioning undergraduate, eventually accepted into medical school. But then the former soldier started his first surgery rotation. Entering the surgical suite, he promptly smelled the burning flesh from the cauterizer. The smell brought back to mind the immediate memory of an enemy combatant he had shot in the face, point-blank, an experience he had suppressed for years. The memory literally doubled him over. He ran out of the room crying, the dying enemy's strange gurgling sounds ringing in his ears, the noises of the evacuation helicopters in the distance. All that day he relived the experience. Later that night he began to recall in succession other equally terrible events. He resigned from the program the next week. This story illustrates something scientists have known for years. Smell can evoke memory. It's called the Proust effect. Marcel Proust, the French author of the profoundly moving book Remembrance of Things Past, talked freely 100 years ago about smells and their ability to elicit long-lost memories. Typical experiments have investigated the unusual ability of a smell to enhance retrieval. Two groups of people might be assigned to see a movie together, for example, and then told to report to the lab for a memory test. The control group goes into an unmanipulated room and simply takes the test. The experimental group takes the test in a room flooded with the smell of popcorn. The results are then compared, scoring for number of events recalled, accuracy of events recalled, specific characteristics, and so on. The results of the test can be astonishing. Some researchers report that smell-exposed experimental groups can accurately retrieve twice as many memories as the controls. Others report a 20% improvement, still others only a 10%. One way to react to these data is to say, wow. Another is to ask, why the disparity in results? One big reason is that the results depend on the type of memory being assessed and the methodology employed to obtain them. For example, researchers have found that certain types of memory are exquisitely sensitive to smells and other types nearly impenetrable. Odors appear to do their finest work when subjects are asked to retrieve the emotional details of a memory, as our medical student experienced, or to retrieve autobiographical memories. You get the best results if the smells are congruent. A movie test in which the smell of gasoline is pumped into the experimental room does not yield the same positive memory retrieval results as the smell of popcorn does. Odors are not so good at retrieving declarative memory. You can get smell to boost declarative scores, but only if the test subjects are emotionally aroused, usually that means stressed, before the experiment begins. For some reason, showing a film of young Australian Aboriginal males being circumcised is a favorite way to do this. 
Recent tests, however, show that smell can improve declarative memory recall during sleep, a subject we will take up in a moment. Is there a reason why the Proust effect exists? Why smell evokes memory? There might be, but to understand it, we have to know a little bit about how smell is processed in the brain. Right between the eyes lies a patch of neurons about the size of a large postage stamp. This patch is called the olfactory region. The outer surface of this region, the one closest to the air in the nose, is called the olfactory epithelium. When we sniff, odor molecules enter the nose chamber and collide with nerves there. This is in itself amazing, given that the chamber is always covered by a thick layer of snot. Somehow these persistent biochemicals penetrate the mucus and brush against little quill-like protein receptors that stud the nerves in the olfactory epithelium. The broadly tuned receptors can recognize a large number of smell-evoking molecules. When that happens, the neurons begin to fire excitedly, and you are well on your way to smelling something. The rest of the journey occurs in the brain. The now-occupied nerves of the olfactory epithelium chat like teenagers on a cell phone to a neighboring group of nerves lying directly above them in the olfactory bulb. These nerves help sort out the signals sent to it by the epithelium. Here comes the interesting part of the story. Every other sensory system at this point must send a signal to the thalamus and ask permission to connect to the rest of the brain, including the higher levels where perception occurs. Not the nerves carrying information about smell. Like an important head of state in a motorcade, smell signals bypass the thalamus and go right to their brainy destinations, no meddling middleman required. One of these destinations is to the amygdala, and it is at this point that the Proust effect begins to make some sense. As you recall, the amygdala supervises not only the formation of emotional experiences, but also the memory of emotional experiences. Because smell directly stimulates the amygdala, smell directly stimulates emotions. Smell signals also head through the piriform cortex to the orbital frontal cortex, a part of your brain just above and behind your eyes, and deeply involved in decision-making. So smell plays a role in decision-making. It is almost as if the odor is saying, my signal is so important, I'm going to give you a memorable emotion. What are you going to do about it? Smell signals appear to be in a real hurry to take these shortcuts, so much so that the olfactory receptor cells aren't even guarded by a protective barrier. This is different from most other sensory receptor cells in the human body. Visual receptor neurons in the retina are protected by the cornea, for example. Receptor neurons that allow hearing in our ears are protected by the eardrum. The only thing protecting receptor neurons from smell are boogers. Otherwise, they are directly exposed to the air. Ideas. There is no question that multiple cues, dished up via different senses, enhance learning. They speed up responses, increase accuracy, improve stimulation detection, and enrich encoding at the moment of learning. Yet we still aren't harnessing these benefits on a regular basis in our classrooms and boardrooms. Here are a couple of ideas that come to mind. Multisensory school lessons. As we learned in the attention chapter, the opening moments of a lecture are cognitive hallowed ground. It is the one time teachers automatically have more student minds paying attention to them. If presentations during that critical time were multisensory, overall retention might increase. We discovered in the memory chapters that repeating information in timed intervals helps stabilize memory. What if we introduced information as a multisensory experience, and then repeated not only the information, but also one of the modes of presentation? The first re-exposure might be presented visually, for example, the next auditorially, the third kinesthetically. Would that encoding-rich schedule increase retention in real-world environments, boosting the already robust influence of repetition? And let's not continue to neglect our other senses. We saw that touch and smell are capable of making powerful contributions to the learning process. 
What if we began to think seriously about how to adopt them into the classroom, perhaps in combination with more traditional learning presentations? Would we capture their boosting effects too? One study showed that a combination of smell and sleep improved declarative memory consolidation. The delightful experiment used a card game my sons and I play on a regular basis. The game involves a specialized 52-card deck we purchased at a museum, resplendent with 26 pairs of animals. We turn all the cards face down, then start selecting two cards to find matches. It is a test of declarative memory. The one with the most correct pairs wins the game. In the experiment, the control groups played the game normally, but the experimental groups didn't. They played the game in the presence of rose scent. Then everybody went to bed. The control groups were allowed to sleep unperturbed. Soon after the snoring began in the experimental groups, however, the researchers filled their rooms with the same rose scent. Upon awakening, the subjects were tested on their knowledge of where the matches had been discovered on the previous day. Those subjects without the rose scent answered correctly 86% of the time. Those re-exposed to the scent answered correctly 97% of the time. Brain imaging experiments showed the direct involvement of the hippocampus. The smell gave a boost to declarative memory performance during sleep. In the highly competitive world of school performance, there are parents who would die to give their kids an 11% edge over the competition. Some CEOs would appreciate such an advantage, too, in the face of anxious shareholders. Sensory Branding Author Judith Vorst once said, Strength is the capacity to break a chocolate bar into four pieces and then eat just one of the pieces. She was, of course, referring to the power of confection on self-will. It's a testament to the power of emotion to incite action. That's just what emotions do. Affect motivations. As we discussed in the attention chapter, emotions are used by the brain to select certain inputs for closer inspection. Because smells stimulate areas in the brain responsible for creating emotions as well as memories, a number of business people have asked, can smell, which can affect motivation, also affect sales? One company tested the effects of smell on business and found a whopper of a result. By emitting the scent of chocolate from a vending machine, they drove chocolate sales up 60%. That's quite a motivation. The same company installed a waffle cone smell emitter near a location-challenged ice cream shop. It was inside a large hotel that was frustratingly hard to find. Sales soared 50%, leading the inventor to coin the term aroma billboard to describe the technique. Welcome to the world of sensory branding. An entire industry is beginning to pay attention to human sensory responses with smell as the centerpiece. In an experiment for a clothing store, investigators subtly wafted the smell of vanilla in the woman's department, a scent known to produce a positive response among women. In the men's department, they diffused the smell of rose maraque, a spicy, honey-like fragrance that has been pre-tested on men. The retail results were amazing. When the scents were deployed, sales doubled from their typical average in each department. And when the scents were reversed, vanilla for men, rose maraque for women, sales plummeted below their typical average. The conclusion? Smell works, but only when deployed in a particular way. You can't just use a pleasant scent and expect it to work, says Eric Spangenberg, the scientist in charge of the work. It has to be congruent. In recognition of this fact, Starbucks does not allow employees to wear perfume on company time. It interferes with the seductive smell of the coffee they serve and its potential to attract customers. Marketing professionals have begun to come up with recommendations for the use of smell in differentiating a brand. First, match the scent with the hopes and needs of the target market. The pleasant smell of coffee may remind a busy executive of the comforts of home, a welcome relief when about to close a deal. Second, integrate the odor with the personality of the object for sale. 
The fresh smell of a forest or the salty odor of a beach might evoke a sense of adventure more so than, say, the smell of vanilla in potential buyers of SUVs. Remember the Proust effect that smell can evoke memory. Smells at work, not coming from the fridge. What about the role of learning in a business setting? Two ideas come to mind based loosely on my teaching experiences. I occasionally teach a molecular biology class for engineers, and one time I decided to do my own little Proust experiment. There was nothing rigorous about this little parlor investigation. It was simply an informal inquiry. Every time I taught one section on an enzyme, RNA polymerase II, for the molecular biologists in the room, I prepped the room by squirting the perfume brute on one wall. In an identical class in another building, I taught the same material, but I did not squirt brute when describing the enzyme. Then I tested everybody, squirting the perfume into both classrooms. Every time I did this experiment, I got the same result. The people who were exposed to the perfume during learning did better on subject matter pertaining to the enzyme, sometimes dramatically better, than those who were not. And that led me to an idea. Many businesses have a need to teach their clients about their products, from how to implement software to how to repair airplane engines. For financial reasons, the classes are often compressed for time and packed with information, 90% of which is forgotten a day later. For most declarative subjects, memory degradation starts the first few hours after the teaching is finished. Let us use the real-world example of an airplane engineer repair class given by an aircraft retailer, but insert the following multisensory fantasy. In this fantasy, the teacher always paired a smell with the learning experience during class, such as in my brood experiment. One might even expose the students to the smell while they are asleep. The students could not help but associate the autobiographical experience of the class, complete with the intense transfer of information, with the odorant. Further consolidation may be aided while they slumber. With the class over, students now return to their company and their waiting shop. Two weeks later, they are confronted with a room full of newly broken engines to repair. Most of the repairmen will have forgotten something in the intense class they took. Many will have to review their notes from class. What if this review took place in the presence of the very smell they encountered during the learning? Would this smell give a boost to their memories, making them more competent repair personnel during the time? What if they continued their exposure to the smell while they were in the shop repairing the actual engine? Is it possible that the boosting effects of smell would remind them of their episodes in the classroom? It might improve performance, even cut down on errors. Sound preposterous? Possibly. But it's a start towards thinking about learning environments that go beyond the normal near addiction to visual and auditory information. It is an area where much potential research fruit lies and is truly a place for brain scientists, education, and business professionals to work together in a very practical way. For your review, here's a summary of the chapter. Let's review the chapter. Sensory Integration Rule number eight. Stimulate more of the senses at the same time. We absorb information about an event through our senses, translate it into electrical signals, some for sight, others for sound, etc., disperse those signals to separate parts of the brain, then reconstruct what happened, eventually perceiving the event as a whole. The brain seems to rely partly on past experience in deciding how to combine these signals, so two people can perceive the same event very differently. Our senses evolve to work together, vision influencing hearing, for example, which means that we learn best if we stimulate several senses at once. Smells have an unusual power to bring back memories, maybe because smell signals bypass the thalamus and head straight to their destinations, which include that supervisor of emotions known as the amygdala.
A tutorial of the chapter is available at www.brainrulesbook.com. Vision. Rule number nine. Vision trumps all other senses. We do not see with our eyes. We see with our brains. The evidence lies with a group of 54 wine aficionados. Stay with me here. To the untrained ear, the vocabularies that wine tasters use to describe wine may seem pretentious, more reminiscent of a psychologist describing a patient. Aggressive complexity with just a subtle hint of shyness is something I once heard at a wine-tasting soiree to which I was mistakenly invited, and from which, once picked off the floor rolling with laughter, I was hurriedly escorted out the door. These words are taken very seriously by the professionals, however. A specific vocabulary exists for white wines, and specific vocabularies exist for red wines, and the two are never supposed to cross. Given how individually we perceive any sense, I have often wondered how objective these tasters actually could be. So apparently did a group of brain researchers in Europe. They descended upon ground zero of the wine-tasting world, the University of Bordeaux, and asked, what if we dropped odorless, tasteless red dye into white wines, then gave it to 54 wine-tasting professionals? With only visual sense altered, how would the enologists now describe their wine? Would their delicate palates see through the ruse, or would their noses be fooled? The answer is, their noses would be fooled. When the wine-tasters encountered the altered whites, every one of them employed the vocabulary of the reds. The visual inputs seemed to trump their other highly trained senses. Folks in the scientific community had a field day. Professional research papers were published with titles like The Color of Odors and The Nose Smells What the Eye Sees. That's about as much frat boy behavior as prestigious brain journals tolerate, and you can almost see the wicked gleam in the researcher's eyes. Data like these point to the nuts and bolts of this chapter's brain rule. Visual processing doesn't just assist in the perception of our world, it dominates the perception of our world. Starting with basic biology, let's find out why. A Hollywood Horde We see with our brains. The central finding, after years of study, is deceptively simple. It is made more misleading because the internal mechanics of vision seem easy to understand. First, light groups of photons, actually, enters our eyes where it is bent by the cornea, a fluid-filled structure upon which your contacts normally sit. The light then travels through the eye to the lens where it is focused and allowed to strike the retina, a group of neurons in the back of the eye. The collision generates electric signals in these cells, and the signals travel deep into the brain via the optic nerve. The brain then interprets the electrical information and we become visually aware. These steps seem effortless, 100% trustworthy, capable of providing a completely accurate representation of what's actually out there. Though we are used to thinking about our vision in such reliable terms, nothing in that last sentence is true. The process is extremely complex, seldom provides a completely accurate representation of our world, and is not 100% trustworthy. Many people think that the brain's visual system works like a camera, simply collecting and processing the raw visual data provided by our outside world. Such analogies mostly describe the function of the eye, however, and not particularly well. We actually experience our visual environment as a fully analyzed opinion about what the brain thinks is out there. We thought that the brain processed information such as color, texture, 
motion, depth, and form in discrete areas. Higher-level structures in the brain then gave meaning to these features, and we suddenly obtained a visual perception. This is very similar to the steps discussed in the multisensory chapter, sensing, routing, and perception, using bottom-up and top-down methods. It is becoming clearer that we need to amend this notion. We now know that visual analysis starts surprisingly early on, beginning when light strikes the retina. In the old days, we thought this collision was a mechanical, automated process. A photon shocked a retinal nerve cell into cracking off some electrical signal, which eventually found its way to the back of our heads. All perceptual heavy lifting was done afterward, deep in the bowels of the brain. There is strong evidence that this is not only a simplistic explanation of what goes on, it is a wrong explanation. Rather than acting like a passive antenna, the retina appears to quickly process the electrical patterns before it sends anything off to mission control. Specialized nerve cells deep within the retina interpret the pattern of photons striking the retina, assemble the pattern into partial movies, then send these movies off to the back of our heads. The retina, it seems, is filled with teams of tiny Martin Scorsese's. These movies are called tracks. Tracks are coherent, though partial, abstractions of specific features of the visual environment. One track appears to transmit a movie you might call Eye Meets Wireframe. It is composed only of outlines or edges. Another makes a film you might call Eye Meets Motion, processing only the movement of an object, and often in a specific direction. Another makes Eye Meets Shadows. There may be as many as 12 of these tracks operating simultaneously in the retina, sending off interpretations of specific features of the visual field. This new view is quite unexpected. It's like discovering that the reason your TV gives you feature films is that your cable is infested by a dozen amateur independent filmmakers hard at work creating the feature while you watch it. Streams of Consciousness These movies now stream out from the optic nerve, one from each eye, and flood the thalamus that egg-shaped structure in the middle of our heads that serves as a central distribution center for most of our senses. If these streams of visual information can be likened to a large, flowing river, the thalamus can be likened to the beginning of a delta. Once it leaves the thalamus, the information travels along increasingly divided neural streams. Eventually, there will be thousands of small neural tributaries carrying parts of the original information to the back of the brain. The information now drains into a large complex region within the occipital lobe called the visual cortex. Put your hand on the back of your head. Your palm is now less than a quarter of an inch away from the area of the brain that allows you to see things. It is a quarter of an inch away from your visual cortex. The visual cortex is a big piece of neural acreage, and the various streams flow into specific parcels. There are thousands of lots, and their functions are almost ridiculously specific. Some parcels respond only to diagonal lines, and only to specific diagonal lines. One region responds to a line tilted at 40 degrees, but not to one tilted at 45. Some process only the color information in a visual signal, others only edges, others only motion. Damage to the region responding to motion results in an extraordinary deficit, the inability to see moving objects as actually moving. This can be very dangerous, observable in the famous case of a Swiss woman, we'll call Goethe. In most respects, Goethe's eyesight was normal. She could provide the names of objects in her visual field, recognize people, both familiar and unfamiliar, as human. She could read newspapers with ease. 
But if she looked at a horse galloping across a field or a truck roaring down the highway, she saw no motion. Instead, she saw a sequence of static, strobe-like snapshots of the objects. There was no smooth impression of continuous motion, no effortless perception of instantaneous changes of location. There was no motion of any kind. Goethe became terrified to cross the street. Her strobe-like world did not allow her to calculate the speed or destination of the vehicles. She could not perceive the cars as moving, let alone moving toward her, though she could readily identify the offending objects as automobiles down to make and license plate. Goethe even said that talking to someone face-to-face -face was like speaking on the phone. She could not see the changing facial expressions associated with normal conversation. She could not see changing at all. Goethe's experience shows the modularity of visual processing, but it is not just motion. Thousands of streams feeding into these regions allow for the separate processing of individual features, and if that was the end of the visual story, we might perceive our world with the unorganized fury of a Picasso painting, a nightmare of fragmented objects, untethered colors, and strange, unboundaried edges. But that's not what happens, because of what takes place next. At the point where the visual field lies in its most fragmented state, the brain decides to reassemble the scattered information. Individual tributaries start recombining, merging, pooling their information, comparing their findings, and then sending their analysis to higher brain centers. The centers gather these hopelessly intricate calculations from many sources and integrate them at an even more sophisticated level. Higher and higher they go, eventually collapsing into two giant streams of processed information. One of these, called the ventral stream, recognizes what an object is and what color it possesses. The other, termed the dorsal stream, recognizes the location of the object in the visual field and whether it is moving. Association regions do the work of integrating the signals. They associate or better to say reassociate the balkanized electrical signals. Then you see something. So the process of vision is not as simple as a camera taking a picture. The process is more complex and more convoluted than anyone could have imagined. There is no real scientific agreement about why this disassembly and reassembly strategy even occurs. Complex as visual processing is, things are about to get worse. We generally trust our visual apparatus to serve as a faithful, up-to-the-minute, 100% accurate representation of what's actually out there. Why do we believe that? Because our brains insist on helping us create our perceived reality. Two examples explain this exasperating tendency. One involves people who see miniature policemen who aren't there. The other involves the active perception of camels. Camels and Cops You might inquire whether I had too much to drink if I told you right now that you were actively hallucinating. It's true. If you were reading this book, rather than listening, at this very moment, you would perceive parts of this page that do not exist, which means you, my friend, are hallucinating. I am about to show you that your brain actually likes to make things up, not 100% faithful to what the eye broadcasts to it. There is a region where retinal neurons, carrying visual information, gather together to begin their journey into deep brain tissue. That gathering place is called the optic disc. It's a strange region, because there are no cells that can perceive sight in the optic disc. It is blind in that region, and you are too. It is called the blind spot, and each eye has one. Do you ever see two black holes in your field of view that won't go away? That's what you should see, but your brain plays a trick on you. 
As the signals are sent to your visual cortex from the retina, the brain detects the presence of the holes and then does an extraordinary thing. It examines the visual information 360 degrees around the spot and calculates what is most likely to be there. Then, like a paint program on a computer, it fills in the spot. The process is called filling in, but it could be called faking it. Some believe that the brain simply ignores the lack of visual information rather than calculating what's missing. Either way, you're not getting a 100% accurate representation. It should not be surprising the brain possesses such independent-minded imaging systems. Proof is as close as last night's dream. But just how much of a loose cannon these systems can be is evidence in a phenomenon known as the Charles Bonnet syndrome. Millions of people suffer from it. Most who have it keep their mouths shut, however, and perhaps with good reason. People with Charles Bonnet syndrome see things that aren't there. It's like the blind spot fill-in apparatus gone horribly wrong. For some patients with Charles Bonnet, everyday household objects suddenly pop into view. For others, unfamiliar people unexpectedly appear next to them at dinner. Neurologist Vili Ramachandran describes the case of a woman who suddenly, and delightfully, observed two tiny policemen scurrying across the floor, guiding an even smaller criminal to a matchbox-sized van. Other patients have reported seeing angels, goats in overcoats, clowns, Roman chariots, and elves. The illusions often occur in the evening and are usually quite benign. It is common among the elderly, especially among those who previously suffered damage somewhere in their visual pathway. Extraordinarily, almost all of the patients experiencing the hallucinations know that they aren't real. No one really knows why they occur. This is just one example of the powerful ways brains participate in our visual experience. Far from being a camera, the brain is actively deconstructing the information given to it by the eyes, pushing it through a series of filters, and then reconstructing what it thinks it sees, or what it thinks you should see. Yet even this is hardly the end of the mystery. Not only do you perceive things that aren't there with careless abandon, but exactly how you construct your false information follows certain rules. Previous experience plays an important role in what the brain allows you to see, and the brain's assumptions play a vital role in our visual perceptions. We consider these ideas next. Since ancient times, people have wondered why two eyes give rise to a single visual perception. If there is a camel in your left eye and a camel in your right eye, why don't you perceive two camels? Here's an experiment to try that illustrates the problem nicely. Close your left eye then stretch your left arm out in front of you. Raise up the index finger of your left hand, as if you were pointing to the sky. Keep the arm in this position while you hold your right arm about six inches in front of your face. Raise your right index finger like it too was pointing to the sky. With your eye still closed, position your right finger so that it appears just to the left of your left index finger. Now, Speedily open your left eye and close the right one. Do this several times. If you positioned your fingers correctly, your right finger will jump to the other side of your left finger and back again. When you open both eyes, the jumping will stop. This little experiment shows that the two images appearing on each retina always differ. It also shows that both eyes working together somehow give the brain enough information to see non-jumping reality. Why do you see only one camel? Why do you see two arms with stable, non-jumping fingers? 
because the brain interpolates the information coming from both eyes. It makes about a gazillion calculations, then provides you its best guess. And it is a guess. You can actually show that the brain doesn't really know where things are. Rather, it hypothesizes the probability of what the current event should look like, and then, taking a leap of faith, approximates a viewable image. What you experience is not the image. What you experience is the leap of faith. Why does the brain do this? Because it is forced to solve a problem. We live in a three-dimensional world, but the light falls on our retina in a two-dimensional fashion. The brain must deal with this disparity if it is going to accurately portray the world. Just to complicate things, our two eyes give the brain two separate visual fields, and they project their images upside down and backward. To make sense of it all, the brain is forced to start guessing. Upon what does it base its guesses, at least in part? The answer is bone-chilling. Prior experience with events in your past. After adamantly inserting numerous assumptions about the received information, some of these assumptions may be inborn, the brain then offers up its findings for your perusal. It goes to all of this trouble for an important reason, dripping with Darwinian goodwill. So you will see one camel in the room when there really is only one camel in the room, and see its proper depth and shape and size, and even hints about whether or not it will bite you. All of this happens in about the time it takes to blink your eyes. Indeed, it is happening right now. If you think the brain has to devote to vision a lot of its precious thinking resources, you are right on the money. It takes up about half of everything you do. This helps explain why snooty wine tasters with tons of professional experience throw out their taste buds so quickly in the thrall of visual stimuli. And that lies at the very heart of this chapter's brain rule. Phantom of the Ocular In the land of sensory kingdoms, there are many ways to show that vision isn't the benevolent prime minister, but the dictatorial emperor. Such control issues show up in phantom limb experiences. Sometimes, people who have suffered an amputation continue to experience the presence of their limb, even though no limb exists. Sometimes the limb is perceived as frozen into a fixed position. Sometimes it feels pain. Scientists have used phantoms to demonstrate the powerful influence vision has on our senses. An amputee with a frozen phantom arm was seated at a table upon which there had been placed a topless, divided box. There were two portals in the front, one for the arm and one for the stump. The divider was a mirror, and the amputee could view a reflection of either his functioning hand or his non-functioning stump. When he looked at his functioning hand, he could see his right arm present and his left arm missing. But when he looked at the reflection of his right arm in the mirror, what looked like another arm, the phantom limb on the other side of the box suddenly woke up. If he moved his normal hand while gazing at its reflection, he could feel his phantom arm move too. And when he stopped moving his right arm, his missing left arm stopped also. The addition of visual information began convincing his brain of a miraculous rebirth of the absent limb. This is vision not only as dictator, but as faith healer. The visual capture effect is so powerful, it can be used to alleviate pain in the phantom. How do we measure vision's dominance? One way is to show its effects on learning and memory. Researchers historically have used two types of memory in their investigation. The first, recognition memory, is a glorified way to explain familiarity. 
We often deploy recognition memory when looking at old family photographs, such as gazing at a picture of an old aunt not remembered for years. You don't necessarily recall her name or the photo, but you still recognize her as your aunt. You may not be able to recall certain details, but as soon as you see it, you know you have seen it before. Other types of learning involve the familiar working memory. Explained in greater detail in the memory chapters, working memory is that collection of temporary storage buffers with fixed capacities and frustratingly short lifespans. Visual short-term memory is the slice of that buffer dedicated to storing visual information. Most of us can hold about four objects at a time in that buffer, so it's a pretty small space. And it appears to be getting smaller. Recent data show that as the complexity of the objects increases, the number of objects capable of being captured drops. The evidence also suggests that the number of objects and complexity of objects are engaged by different systems in the brain, turning the whole notion of short-term capacity, if you will forgive me, on its head. These limitations make it all the more remarkable, or depressing, that vision is probably the best single tool we have for learning anything. Worth a thousand words. When it comes to memory, researchers have known for more than a hundred years that pictures and text follow very different rules. Put simply, the more visual the input becomes, the more likely it is to be recognized and recalled. The phenomenon is so pervasive, it has been given its own name, the pictorial superiority effect, or PSE. Human PSE is truly Olympian. Tests performed years ago showed that people could remember more than 2,500 pictures with at least 90% accuracy several days post-exposure, even though subjects saw each picture for about 10 seconds. Accuracy rates a year later still hovered around 63%. In one paper, adorably titled Remember Dick and Jane? Picture recognition information was reliably retrieved several decades later. Sprinkled throughout these experiments were comparisons with other forms of communication. The favorite target was usually text or oral presentations, and the usual result was, picture demolishes them both. It still does. Text and oral presentations are not just less efficient than pictures for retaining certain types of information, they are way less efficient. If information is presented orally, people remember about 10% tested 72 hours after exposure. That figure goes up to 65% if you add a picture. The inefficiency of text has received particular attention. One of the reasons that text is less capable than pictures is that the brain sees words as lots of tiny pictures. Data clearly show that a word is unreadable unless the brain can separately identify simple features in the letters. Instead of words, we see complex little art museum masterpieces with hundreds of features embedded in hundreds of letters. Like an art junkie, we linger at each feature, rigorously and independently verifying it before moving to the next. The finding has broad implications for reading efficiency. Reading creates a bottleneck. Text chokes you, not because text is not enough like pictures, but because text is too much like pictures. To our cortex, unnervingly, there is no such thing as words. That's not necessarily obvious. After all, the brain is as adaptive as silly putty. With years of reading books, writing email, and sending text messages, you might think that the visual system could be trained to recognize common words without slogging through tedious additional steps of letter feature recognition. But that is not what happens. 
No matter how experienced a reader you become, you will stop and ponder individual textual features as you plow through pages, and you will do so until you can't read anymore. Perhaps with hindsight, we could have predicted such inefficiency. Our evolutionary history was never dominated by text-filled billboards or Microsoft Word. It was dominated by leaf-filled trees and saber-toothed tigers. The reason vision means so much to us may be as simple as the fact that most of the major threats to our lives in the savannah were apprehended visually. Ditto with most of our food supplies. Ditto with our perceptions of reproductive opportunity. The tendency is so pervasive that, even when we read, most of us try to visualize what the text is telling us. Words are only postage stamps delivering the object for you to unwrap, George Bernard Shaw was fond of saying. These days, there is a lot of brain science technology to back him up. 